What is the ought state gap? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Peter Jaworski. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Peter Jaworski. Peter is an associate teaching professor at Georgetown University, where he teaches business ethics. Previously, he was a visiting research professor at Brown University, a visiting assistant professor at the College of Worcester, and an instructor at Bowling Green State University. He often lectures on the ethics of immigration. And of course, Peter has been on with me more than just a couple of times now, I think, if I'm counting correctly, on The Curious Task. So we encourage everyone to check out the uh, backlog of our episodes and you'll find Peter's name there uh, a handful of times, and we encourage you to check out those episodes. Peter, welcome back to The Curious Task. It's nice to see you. Yeah, it's great to see you again, Alex. Uh, thanks for having me back. Yeah, no, as always, you're definitely welcome here, and I'm excited to talk to you about our topic today. And as you know, Peter, we base each episode on a question, and we go over the answers and conversation takes us. So our question today is, what is the ought state gap? And this is a concept and idea you've thought about for a while. You've presented in lectures and so on. You know it like the back of your hand, and we could probably jump to point sort of, you know, B instead of starting at A and go on from there. But I do really want to start the listeners and people who haven't heard you on this topic before right at, right at the beginning and, you know, ask some simple foundational questions and then work up the logic from there. So at the highest level, shortest summary, before we get into oughts and states and institutional that stuff, just what do you mean when you say there's an ought state gap? Like, what are we talking about? Shortest summary. Shortest summary goes like this. It's not enough to have a kind of moral conviction to conclude that some specific institution should be the one to realize those moral oughts. Right. I hope that's kind of clear, right? Um, yeah, so, so like, I guess in other words the conversation of whether something ought to happen or what's right for say you and I to do, for example, doesn't necessarily mean it falls that the state ought to do that thing or a certain institution, I guess. Yeah. Or, or any specific institution, including the government. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I noticed this in the kinds of conversations that I see a lot of libertarians having. So a lot of libertarians will have moral disagreements with people because they think, I mean, there's something, I mean, I guess we could call this the libertarian shortcut and it goes Something like this. If I can convince you to be a self-ownership theorist, if I can convince you that it's a fact about our moral obligations, that we are self-owners, right, and that we have property, very strong property rights in ourselves, then this is like a really neat shortcut to getting to the libertarian conclusion. Because if somebody agrees that we are self-owners, then it follows just by like the definition of the word or whatever, that other people can't tell me what to do. They can't take my stuff. They can't take parts of me. They can't take part of my labor, et cetera. We have lots of libertarian shortcuts. Self-ownership is just one. Another one is, uh, you know, natural rights theory. Right. So if I can convince you that we have now, of course, the details are going to differ. And of course, there are non-libertarians who accept natural rights theory or natural law theory or something like that. They just think the content of those rights are different. But if I can persuade you that we have certain specific rights, like life, liberty, and private property or something like that, then, you know, the details of the real world around us don't really need to bother us. Like, it's just a truth about ethics <clears throat> that you can't tell me what to do. Right? It's just right. a fact about ethics that you have to respect my private property. Okay, so this is like a really nice clean shortcut. So if only we could persuade people who disagree with us about ethics, right, we wouldn't then have to talk about the empirical facts. We wouldn't then have to investigate what the world is like, We, apart from the, the objective facts about ethics. Uh, we could just agree about the ethics and come to the conclusion. And I call that a kind of libertarian shortcut. That's sort of the model. And so I've noticed that a lot of uh, you know, libertarians, but not just libertarians. But I notice a lot of them will spend a lot of time discussing exclusively like what our moral obligations uh, are, because they want to, or at least I think they want to take advantage of that shortcut. So they're resistant right at the very beginning 
to some pretty plausible, I think, objections to those kinds of moral views, and also to some alternative moral views that I think are super plausible. Um, just to give you one example, uh, think about Peter Singer for a moment, right? He has this famous case, everybody or lots of people know the, the case of the like baby drowning in, in a puddle. The story goes like this, imagine you're walking along and there's like a baby. Uh, drowning in the puddle. No one else is around. The parents aren't around. Everybody is too far away. It's just you, this puddle, and this baby. And the question is, do you have a moral obligation to like save the baby's life? Now, let me tell you some more because the details are going to matter, right? Now, right? All you will have to do, the mother is already or the father is already running towards the baby, right? They're just very far away. And by the time they get to the puddle, the baby will have drowned, right? Now you can just walk in there and all you have to do is just like reach over and it's a baby. So this is really easy. And just, just take it by the, by the clothes that the, the baby's wearing and sort of flip it over onto the shore. You will thereby save the baby's life and the parents will show up and take care of the baby and so on. However, in the process of saving the baby's life, you're going to get your shoes very dirty. And suppose you're wearing some fine Jordans or something awesome or whatever, <laughs> right? It's basically going to cost you, let's say, 50 bucks or something like that. Because you'll, you'll have to buy a new pair of shoes or you'll have to clean your shoes or whatever. It's going to cost you 50 bucks. Question, do you have an obligation to pull the baby out of the puddle? Mm. And I think, and this is sort of like... I, I think it's just obvious that you do, right? I think yeah. it's just obvious that you have this obligation. You have this obligation in virtue of the fact that it's something that's really easy for you to do. And it's a, it's a way of recognizing the value of human lives. Right? This is a, a really significant value that is at stake. And it wouldn't, and, you know, it's not a burdensome thing to ask you to like save the baby, and I'm not sure if libertarians are sort of solution aversive or whatever. So like maybe they're thinking two or three steps ahead and they're like, well, if I accept this obligation, then it's going to automatically follow that I have to accept that the government can take some of my money in the form of taxes in order to provide welfare. Mm -hmm. And this is where the ought state gap comes in, right? It is not true that even if you accept this positive obligation to save these babies and all similar sorts of cases, that it'll ineluctably or like analytically or automatically or of necessity follow, that we need to have any institution to help us with like saving babies. Mm -hmm. So just, just to run with that saving babies one a little further, not to simplify too much, but obviously these tools are often quite helpful. I mean, we kind of cut to a point where you sort of said like, hey, like I think you do have an obligation to that baby. baby. It's an easy thing to do. You went through that process. So if I'm coming, and of course, just everyone listening, we're creating some caricatures here in the little time we have. So I know there's lots of right, there's lots of value systems out there and stuff that we're not going to cover entirely. But if we're having that sort of caricature that like you know solution averse libertarian natural rights or sort of um you know person that's coming from that self-ownership perspective apply that type of person in your mind to that baby situation and why just extend that a little further for me like from their perspective what are they doing in that baby situation that you think sort of creates that sort of you know ought and institution gap i, I know it's grafting literal things we could be talking about onto sort of a metaphor but i kind of want to finish with that metaphor <laughs> first so what would that person do and why do you think that's sort of in correct way of looking at it so let me say uh, a couple of things right um they believe that um something along the lines of accepting a positive obligation is either a step in the direction of statism or in the direction of thinking that uh the government is required to do these things or it's more than merely a step that it sort of guarantees it Right. A lot of people, I think, and um, I mean wrongly, a lot of people think that the way to argue about political philosophy is just to exclusively talk about what moral obligations we have, and then to sort of assume as though institutions are going to behave in the way that we draw up on the blackboard. Mm -hmm. and, and if we find like one little moral, like, you know, infringement or something in that real political institution, we chuck the whole thing out, for example. Yeah, for example. Right. So I think people people are concerned about where this is going. That's what I mean by being aversive to the solution or like solution aversion on the part of uh, libertarians. And so I think sometimes it's just a matter of 
you know, being insincere. Like when I ask you, like, do you feel the intuition? You can just say yes, right? Um, you feel the intuitive pull of like having to save the baby. And I get a lot of things that are like talking about a, a different subject. So it's very frustrating when somebody says, oh, no, listen, I would, but I don't think I'm obligated to, right? Okay, somebody might be sincere. They might sincerely believe that our exclusive obligations, what we are literally obligated to do, is all and only not harm others or not infringe on the rights of others so that fundamentally all of our obligations are sort of negative. Um, uh, I would love to be able to read minds. Of course, I can't read minds. So I'm just sort of guessing that people are not, not giving the honest answer when they say, when they report that they don't share those intuitions. But it's enough for me to say that like very many people are going to share that particular uh, intuition. Right. And, and when they say like, I would do it, what's the point of saying that? Right. Like, why say, like, I would do it? Oh, okay, you would do it, but you don't think you're obligated to. So you think it's a good thing to do, but you don't think you're kind of required to do it. So I, so you can ask the question a little bit differently, not to belabor the point about the baby. In the <laughs> it's so a good tool. It's a good tool. <laughs> <laughs> so much has been said about this. It sort of feels like, I don't know, like, like too much attention on this one thought experiment. Or this one child um, for that matter. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one like specific, yeah. specific baby. Um, you might wonder, well, do I have, suppose I'm watching you and you're standing next to the puddle. Um, and then you fail to do anything. And then the mother shows up and the baby's drowned, right? It's no longer with us. Question is, does the mother have a complaint against you? Have a legitimate sort of beef with you? Do I? Like watching you stand there, you didn't do anything. And then I say, wait, did you not notice? You saw that there was a baby in the puddle, right? And then the person says, yeah, I did, right? And you could mm -hmm. have saved the baby for like, it would have been no big deal. Why didn't you? And the person says, yeah, I just didn't feel like it, right? So then what is the nature of my complaint? Like, it seems clear that I can say, wow, you really are a bad person. That's what I want to say. And if you say, aha, but I didn't have an obligation, you see, to save the baby, that just seems, it just seems wrong. It seems like both the mother and the father and anybody else would have a complaint against you. You ought to have behaved in that way. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of people are resistant to just reporting what their intuitions are, honestly, because they are solution averse and because they think that accepting this positive obligation is either a step in the direction of accepting uh, a welfare state or uh, a more expansive role for the government, where they think that that's the whole ballgame. Mm -hmm. You either reject positive uh, obligations or you accept socialism, right? Something, I mean, I'm being right. rhetorically flipped here, but, but people think something like that. And the odd state gap is supposed to show people that like, look, we can have whatever arguments we want in the moral domain. But any kind of positive obligation or positive duty or positive moral thing that we owe other people, none of that is going to analytically lead to any kind of political institution or any kind of institution at all, including any kind of political institutions. Mm -hmm. So to push it a little further on that, then just to pose the question this sort of way, why does it not directly follow or strictly follow, for example, that, you know, if you're saving babies one day, um, you know, you have state communism the next day. I'm not trying to be flippant. I, I'm like, I'm really trying to give that sort of area of thought like like a fair shake. Is, is it because, um, you know, in your view, uh, the way people should properly think about these things, whether they're moral decisions and like sort of consequences, is that things don't necessarily linearly roll that way? Is it that the world's just more complicated? So like, why does it not directly or strictly follow? Because people often just put that argument, right? Like it's a first principle, you accept X, we can dress up the, you know, the principle all we want with different sort of realities. But at the end of the day, the principle beneath that's the violation of, you know, this brand of libertarianism or whatever else. So why does it not strictly follow then in your view? Yeah, because the point is to save babies. And we don't know whether or not some particular institution is going to work. We don't know whether or not some institution is going to work better or worse than some alternative institution. Uh, we don't know, uh, absent, I say we, I mean philosophers, right? Us as philosophers or ethicists, we don't know like what's going to be most effective and also most efficient. And it might turn out, and there are plenty of these cases, we can talk about them. Sometimes they go under the broad heading of like the Cobra effect or something like that, right? But 
There, it might be the case that despite our good intentions and our instituting an institution in order to bring about some particular end, it not only will fail to bring about that end, but it might undermine other things of value or it might actually do the reverse of the intended objective, right? I mean, some clear cases that I think everybody will just recognize right away. Look, if you want to lower alcohol use, it is not obvious that the right thing to do is to uh, make it illegal. So suppose you want to lower alcohol use, not because you're some kind of virtue ethicist or something who thinks that like it's very important for people to be sober, but rather it's because you think that there's a, a kind of connection between the use of alcohol and increased violence. Right? That's a plausible connection. It's a plausible view. So you say, look, we need to lower alcohol use. The best thing we can do to lower alcohol use is to make it illegal. But we do know what happened in the case of alcohol prohibition. Alcohol prohibition had very bad effects, especially with respect to violence. And it's possible that it lowered overall alcohol use, but it did not lower violence. And the nature of that violence was very significant. Um, you had mafias, you had uh, all kinds of people that would use violence to get it, right? So here is a case where somebody had good intentions. They decided that they would, you know, the, the moral truth is that we ought to have uh, less alcohol use because violence is bad. And so they reached for like the institution that they thought was most appropriate. And the end result was the opposite of what was intended, Right. So it's in a way a kind of simple point that it is possible, right, that things might go worse. And in a way, uh, in a way, it's strange that uh, libertarians have the, the kind of resistance that I think they do to these kinds of arguments, especially because they are most open to recognizing that the government is not always the best tool for bringing about good ends. Mm -hmm. And that it's very likely that the tool is going to come. Well, the tool of necessity comes with certain moral downsides. So whatever your, your deeper moral view, you're going to think that, you know, the threat of coercion or coercion itself, uh, there's something that counts against it. You might think that it's outweighed by other considerations in very many cases, but every time you know, every time we pass a law, every time we reach for the state, we are simultaneously introducing a little bit of coercion into the world more than before. Now, maybe that's not super important. Maybe coercion isn't the, the most significant moral bad out there. That's my view, by the way. I don't think it's the most significant moral bad out there, but it is a moral bad, full stop. Like it is a bad thing. So there's always something that counts against using the state for anything because it augments the amount of coercion in the world. And, and by the way, I mean, you know, it's possible that you pass a law and then everybody just sort of adheres to the law, in which case nobody would actually be arrested. But even the threat of coercion is itself a kind of uh, evil might be too strong, but it's itself a kind of evil that we introduce uh, into the world. Right. Yeah. And and it's interesting you said something right there because you said you don't think coercion is like the the greatest bad, if you will, uh, in in the world that we know of. Like, do, do you think that we, um, you know, do, do you think that any kind of train of thought that we might have further in this conversation might just not be for someone that might say, no, no, it is full stop. It's like the worst thing in the world. We're done. Like, I guess what I'm trying to establish here is like not trying to exclude people from the argument, but is there actually like a chunk of people where you would where you with this view would say, okay. To be fair, if so-and-so, you over there truly believe one, two, and three, you're right. My argument doesn't apply. Or do you think it's kind of got you know, universal applicability regardless of what angle you're coming from? No. So I will say the following. If you do think that, if you think coercion is the worst thing ever, that's, that's fine, right? Because here is a way to like analytically bridge the odd state gap, right? Establish that there's something that no one may do it automatically follows that the state can't do it, right? So this is a way to like analytically bridge the ought state gap. It requires us to establish a negative, like you ought not do mm. something. And then of course it follows that the state ought not do it. It's on the positive side of things. When you establish a kind of positive obligation or a positive duty, 
or like a reason that you might have a moral reason in order to do something using your own resources for the benefit of others. That's when that gap is most glaring and we need some kind of bridge between them. Unfortunately, in my view, right, there's no analytic bridge between any positive obligation and the conclusion that the state ought to do it. All of those bridges are going to be empirical, and that's the point. All of those bridges are going to require us to do some kind of social scientific work, some kind of inquiry into the way the world works, apart from uh, an inquiry into the truth about what we owe one another and, uh, and the truth about ethics more broadly. Right. Right. Yeah. And because I, I guess that's the inescapable fact, right? Is at the end of the day, we are making conclusions about the real world or making prescriptions, either negative or positive ones, about the real world. Like you can't escape that fact. So your argument essentially is that, uh, you know, you have to combine your sort of moral views and your empirical conclusions to actually get a conclusion about what ought to happen, if you will, is what I'm hearing. Because, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, it's not all just introspection and thinking about it, right? No, exactly right. I mean, there's too many of us, meaning political philosophers, who think we can do all of our work in the armchair. Right. right. But we cannot. And there's a role for economists, too. And not just economists, but like a, a whole bevy of social scientists. Yeah. And that role is in bridging that. Look, the, the thing we can do as political philosophers and ethicists is tell you, um, tell the world, although the world won't listen, what, what we owe one another. And what our moral obligations are. That's our job. Mm -hmm. And then somebody else has to come along and be like, well, this is going to work. This isn't going to work. Yeah, no, I'm reminding uh, of actually, like, I think it was like David Friedman who said, who's like, seems to be known from what I've seen uh, from him. Like, uh, if there is a, a point of view in the room, he might just challenge it for the sake of it to show you the other side. So I remember like, you know, he, he I have often seen him talk about, you know, things about like, you know, here's why the minimum wage is silly, like, you know, classic economic arguments. But I saw him at a, either a talk or a question where somebody was just so like, oh, obviously, you know, the minimum wage, like, you know, no, 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 not a good idea. And like, he just flipped it and went, he's like, well, I could construct, you know, a situation where it might be true that the minimum wage would be helpful. He's like, we can construct things all day, right? And then he kind of went on about Chicago school economics, which we're not going to get into here. But the point is, it actually sounds similar to me, right? Is that at the end of the day, we can make our hypothesis about like whether it's about like, you know, economics on the one hand, or in this case about like, you know, what's actually going to happen in the real world. But at some point, we got to test them to some degree and actually observe what's really happening out there. So I think that's pretty interesting to think about. Yeah, that's right. I mean, part of the important point here is that the way we ought to think about people's political views is not by uh, looking at their values or their intentions. I think that's a mistake. Right? Hmm. Um, I think what makes somebody a libertarian is that they endorse what we can describe as like the libertarian set of political institutions. Right. And what makes you a conservative is that you endorse the conservative set of political institutions, whatever those are. Right. Um, same with liberal, same with socialist. Right. We don't define um, a socialist by their intentions or their values. Right. We define them in terms of the institutions that they endorse or support. What makes a country a socialist country isn't reflection on like what the intentions of the government are or what the values of the government are. That's not what makes it. Right. I'm actually, actually, in fact, just to like add to your point there, what a lot of like, especially on the American libertarian scene, like North America, I mean, Canada, United States, mostly um, what they'll often say is like, oh, well, we're, you know, regardless of intentions, here's what you get in like the USSR, state socialism kind of thing. So it's like even granted on the flip side, right? It's just, I guess, <laughs> that's a really good point that when you come back to, uh, you know, libertarians in their own camp, I guess, sometimes it's like, you know, that same logic doesn't flip, but you, you bring up an excellent point, right? Because it's even, it's even put forward by a lot of libertarians that like, oh, yeah, well, yeah, great, great intentions sir but you know road to hell pay with good intentions all that blah 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 it's like that, that works for that, that sort of counterpoint to the ussr right yeah that's exactly right i mean right and then that's how you know you know that something i mean you point to the rules the laws and the institutions that's how we know whether a country is you know libertarian conservative liberal whatever you don't point to the values right because you could just imagine um well we can construct thought experiments where, you know, you got a confused libertarian that are like, well, I intend to promote the maximal amount of freedom. Therefore, I have passed this law that says, you know, nobody's allowed to speak freely. You go, Wait a second. That's not a libertarian. That's right. It's not a libertarian rule. It's not a libertarian institution. Therefore, it's not like libertarian. But the intention, because this person is just confused. 
right? The intention is a libertarian intention, but nevertheless, it's just not. Right. So we define we define political views in terms of like the public policies that they accept. Right. And it's true that like in order to figure out what the libertarian set of political institutions is, the thing to do is to take somebody who um, endorses something like the self-ownership theory or like a natural rights theory. And you go, well, what deductively or analytically follows from that? What institutions do people support if they accept that? That's how you get the libertarian set of political institutions. But notice, please notice that like you can adopt, you can um uh, you can endorse the libertarian set of political institutions from very many different moral views. Right? right. These are two separate inquiries. Like we should keep the the moral inquiry like off to the side for a second and distinct from, you know, broader claims about political philosophy. Of course, you need to have the moral story in order to know uh, what you want the institutions to accomplish. But then it's like, what will the institutions accomplish? That's an empirical question. Right. You don't you don't you don't just get to draw it up on the blackboard and go, well, you know, if we have this institution, then the result will be all the babies will be pulled out of the puddles. No, it doesn't work that way. Right. And you know, or it might not, or, or might not exactly that possible part. And I'm, I'm going to hold this right there, actually, because I'm going to shift gears into a couple other things. So right now we're going to take a break. Everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task, and I'm speaking with Peter Jaworski today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Andy Crooks, Vincent Geloso, and Elizabeth Aragona. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to the Curious Task. I'm speaking with Peter Jaworski today. So, Peter, I think the first half was great. We established like the basics of, of your uh, discussion and your argument, basically about the odd state gap and essentially how people need to bring that combination of their moral views and understand basically the world the way it works. So, i.e., empirical conclusions to actually, you know, conclude on what they should, what they actually think should happen or what they should be prescribing um, if they're to be consistent with themselves actually and the outcomes they want. But um, I want to get a little further into what you sort of mean by like empirical conclusions and looking at the real world. I, I mean, obviously, I know you're not saying this, but just to set the stage, like, you know, flippantly, someone might say, well, like, you know, what's wrong with doing a bit of that armchair thinking? That's how a lot of people come to libertarianism. What you all you want us all to get, like, you know, PhDs in economics and sort of, uh, you know, other kinds of like political economy or whatever. Uh, like, you know, what, what do you mean, really, by, by looking at the real world? And, you know, when you use terms like empirical conclusions, some of the people who enjoy thinking about ethics might be like, oh, wait, hold on a minute. Or maybe even get a little discouraged so how you know from from that sort of like casual libertarian perspective how, how do you mean someone should approach you know this type of thinking really okay so a couple of things so one one reason why i think the odd state gap is important is because it's sort of or it's intended to free you up in terms of your moral reasoning so instead of being subject to solution aversion, you could hold constant, you could just, just push the discussion of politics aside for a second or the discussion of political institutions aside for a second. And now you can sincerely answer. When I ask, like, do you share the intuition that you got to save the baby? You could just be free to sort of say yes without thinking about where it might follow. Because like I said, nothing about political institutions follows except for like negative obligations or negative things, right? Um, it's also really useful in being able to recognize that there are plenty of uh, libertarians who are decidedly uh, libertarian who endorse very many different moral views. Now, each individual person, of course, accepts a single moral view or else they're incoherent. But there are so very many different paths, right, in the direction of libertarianism, of course, also in, in different directions, too. But... Uh, just to give you a couple of examples, right, there are Kantian libertarians, there are utilitarian libertarians. The utilitarian libertarians are confusing to too many libertarians. They're like, how is that possible? How is it possible for somebody to accept that we have an obligation to, like, maximize um, the good impartially, like, maximize happiness impartially? Right. Mm. How could it be that you can believe that and think that, like, the state should be really small? Like, why shouldn't? 
Shouldn't you believe that the state should be really, really, really big? But of course, utilitarians are going to say, well, yeah, maybe if it works. And uh, libertarians who are utilitarian in their orientation are going to say that it doesn't. That the thing to do in order to, to like in the long run, in a stable way, maximize wealth, income and happiness and a lot of good things besides is through the free and open market. And through a kind of free and open civil society, that this is the path to like John Stuart Mill tried to make that case, Mm. right? And plenty of contemporary people, Christopher Fryman comes to mind, right? But like, there's plenty of other people who accept those uh, moral views and then come to libertarian conclusions. So it sort of opens it up. It frees you up. You don't have to become an economist, right? You just have to recognize that like, you know, facts on the ground are going to be relevant to what institutions you endorse. And obviously, right? You know, like, I'm not saying that the odd state, like this should, for lots of people listening to this, the thing they should come away with is like, yeah. Does anybody think otherwise? And the answer is, I, I, I mean, I'm not sure because there's plenty of evidence that that people do um, um, exclusively deal with or exclusively attempt to construct moral arguments when they're producing what they think is like work of political philosophy. Uh, but they allow themselves certain assumptions. For example, the assumption that like the institutions are going to work perfectly. Right. Um, yeah, so like a standard, I mean, not to, I mean, John Rawls, right? Um, he's like, let's talk about what we owe one another. Let's talk about the truth about ethics. Now let's make certain assumptions like that uh, uh, state actors, state agents are going to act perfectly justly. And then you get these conclusions. But of course, if you make an assumption, there's an asymmetrical assumption here. You can't you can't say, well, people on the market are going to behave unjustly or people in their private capacity are going to behave unjustly. But then when they put on their government hat, suddenly they're perfectly just. That seems weird. Right. Right. So, yeah. So, right. We got to keep the like moral theorizing separate and distinct from the po- political philosophy stuff. And I don't think I'm saying anything, <laughs> anything surprising. Uh, I just want to point it out because I think it's important. Yeah, no, for sure. And I'll just throw a word in there, too, basically to say that a lot of people listening might think that, you know, we're we're, because sometimes people tend to group libertarians under the general umbrellas of like, you know, you come up from like sort of like an ethical or natural rights perspective and other libertarians are more like that consequentialist kind of libertarian. It sounds like we're sort of beating up maybe the natural rights ones or the ones that come from that sort of umbrella first. But I think a lot of what you said, too, can also apply to the consequentialist libertarians as well, I find, because, you know, that also, uh, although they deal a little less in like, yeah, you get from X principle to Y consequence it's like you know even there even when you're just dealing with quote-unquote consequences if that's possible you're basically getting a lot of people that are saying and therefore this consequence and it's like are we really sure we understand the real world at that point right so even when there's a lot of people who sort of and i've seen them do this like proudly sort of throw off the oh we're not talking about that natural right stuff it's like yeah but we still do as you said then still have to understand what's going on in the real world regardless we can't just then assume you know we we know it regardless right that's right. No, I agree with that. Mm-hmm. I think it's perfectly appropriate to be a natural rights theorist, to be a kind of libertarian in that way. I think that's fine. There's plenty of really powerful arguments. I, uh, you know, Robert Nozick is one of the most persuasive. Anarchy, State, and Utopia is one of the most persuasive books written in political philosophy in a very long, in a very long time. Right. So I do have nothing but respect for those kinds of views. Uh, But nevertheless, they are not my views. And I'm just here to point out that, like, it's fine for people to accept uh, different moral views and they might still end up uh, as libertarians or, frankly, not. And that's okay too. So so do you think that, and of course, like, we don't want to just have Peter appoint uh, himself to this place, you know, in the sort of libertarian lore, but I might be able to do it for him. That's that's no problem. But do you, do you, in all seriousness, do you think that, you know, a lot of the times people have sort of like these basic summaries or heuristics, if you will, when they're dealing with sort of like libertarianism, it's sort of like, you know, some people like the NAP, other people just think about, it for, as I said, more of the consequentialist perspective. Let's call it like sort of that basic libertarian 101 toolkit that you might get when you're being welcomed into the fold of that kind of thinking. Do, do, you know, I've heard you talk about this a lot either casually or in a lecture before i've seen like this is a topic very passionate to you it sounds like you think this should be like right up there right regardless if you're coming from that nep perspective or sort of like a different perspective libertarianism like this is sort of that kind of sort of i guess um 
concept, the odd state gap that people should hold themselves accountable to almost, it sounds like. It's it's almost like a check and balance to how you might positively approach libertarianism is sort of the, what I get off of this. Well, frankly, any view, not just the libertarian view. Yeah, that's a good by the point. way, yeah, you brought up NAP. We should spell that out, the non-aggression principle, right? Right. Yeah. Um, or, for example, I, I hear a lot of people who say that what makes somebody a libertarian is that they think that like freedom is the most important value. But of course, that's not true. You don't have to think that. You can still be a libertarian and not not believe that at all. Right. Um, And that's because the way that we differentiate a libertarian from other political philosophies is not by their moral views, not by their intentions, not by their values, but instead by the like political institutions and rules that they endorse. It's the rules and the institutions that make you a particular kind of political view and not those um, not those values. Mm. So so, something fun I'd like to do now, it's going to seem like I'm completely switching gears, but I think. If you'll bear with me, you'll see how we're actually going to sort of do things in parallel here. So one thing you're very passionate about and do a lot of activism on is the topic of uh, blood and plasma, specifically the idea that there are more market-based and compensation means for places like Canada to allow a healthy supply of blood and plasma to those who need it. So the idea if we pay not only is being paid for a uh, blood or plasma donation a, a, a good thing, a permissible thing, something that should happen. It also is going to help the blood supply consequentially, and you have a lot of discussions about that. But I thought it would be fun if you could figure out a way to explain some of the views and oppositions to sort of a market for blood and plasma or compensation for blood and plasma from opponents of that of your position in terms of the ought-state gap fallacy. So they have arguments oh. is where I'm going with this. And I know it's going to flip around your thinking because you're always advocating for that, for the, for your, for uh, what I think is rightfully uh, what, what should be advocated for. But I guess like it, to be, give these people a fair shake, they often have an, if X, you know, X is right. X is the way we should think about. It. So therefore the institution should be like this kind of jump. So I kind of think to flip to, so you kind of tour what their point of view and your point of view is, maybe apply some of this, uh, what we've been talking about here, that odd state gap, because I think I detected at least in some of the way they think about this stuff. So what a great question. Let me, let me do this. Uh, let me do two different things. Uh, second, I'll do what you've asked me to do. Uh, but first I want to apply it to my own case okay. because you said both blood and plasma and that I endorse the use of um, compensation financial sort of compensation in order to encourage both blood and plasma. That's not precisely right. I endorse financial compensation for plasma, but I don't endorse it, not yet anyways, when it comes to blood. These are Hmm. two different things. Okay. Um, And the difference is that one is used for transfusion, and there's some chance that the use of financial incentives might encourage people who... um, um, who might have uh, lower quality bloods. And what that means is like people who might have hepatitis C or HIV. It might encourage people to lie about engaging in certain high-risk behaviors. And for that reason, we have to be sensitive to that fact. And so we have to be sensitive to, like in principle, there wouldn't be anything the matter with paying people for blood plasma, uh, for blood, excuse me, for whole blood donations used for transfusions. But in practice, we have to be aware of these kinds of facts. And so if it turns out that it does motivate and incentivize people to lie about these things, then we can predict a higher rate of transfusion of transfusion transmissible infections. If so, then we shouldn't endorse that. The reason why it's different for plasma is because plasma goes through a process of manufacturing that includes eliminating some of these uh, viruses, right? Mm. So that's a little application of the odd state gap in uh, in the case of uh, blood and plasma and why I treat those two things differently. Right. And not to speed too much past it, because I think you're so used to this. So I mean, and I'm good at that speed too. But like, I think I just want to parse it real quick. Like that's, I think what you're saying is an example of how like you don't find any moral issue with the idea that, you know, hey, you know, that, per, you know, this hospital, this, you know, group, they want a blood supply. That guy wants, that guy or gal wants to like, you know, accept some compensation to donate their blood. Like you don't have any sort of moral obligation to, or excuse me, moral objection to that but you're actually saying hey we know when we actually go from our ought to our 
institution and actually how things work discussion, you actually do detect some problems is what you're saying or potential problems. I do. I say. When it comes to blood for transfusion or any okay. transfusable thing for which we don't have viral inactivation and removal technology. But as soon as we have viral inactivation and removal technology, then we should conditional on it actually increasing the amount of blood and plasma available to save lives and it being sort of cheaper than the next best alternative. Now, it turns out in the case of plasma, it is not only the only effective uh, sort of system that we have, right? The United States supplies 60 to 70% of the starting plasma to make the therapies that we make from plasma. Similarly, the other countries that allow payment, like together, all those countries provide 90% and the rest of the world that does not use some kind of compensation system provides only 10% of the starting plasma. Like we would have, it would be a disaster if, if the United States didn't pay for plasma. Now coming at it from the other side, some people say that like, Oh, well, uh, one concern is that, um, you know, if we think of the plasma, if we're paying for plasma, then we will think of plasma as a commodity. Plasma is close to us as a person. A lot of people think about blood and they think about themselves or like the blood is a substance that carries me with it. Right. So then it's possible that we might commodify persons. And what that means is treating and regarding a person as though they were like a widget, mm. right? As though they were like a hubcap or some kind of whatever right? Widget and economics, right? So that's one, one sort of concern, but it doesn't follow that we can't, it doesn't follow that we nevertheless can't use some form of financial incentive in order to get more plasma. Here's a paper that I'm working on right now. This is what I was working on just before we got on the podcast right now. Look, the plasma companies say that they are not paying for plasma. They say that they are paying for time and effort. And most people in the United States and Canada, they go, oh, nonsense. You're not actually paying for time and effort. You're actually paying for the plasma itself. But before, before we say nonsense, assume that like the companies are able to convince us that they are paying for time and effort rather than plasma. Notice that what this does to like the commodification objection. Well, <laughs> you know, plasma or blood is close to us. And so that's how the inference goes from like, if we treat plasma as a commodity, then we might start to think of persons as mere commodities, but that's because plasma itself uh, carries us or whatever. But if you don't think that the plasma is the object of sale, but instead the object of sale is the time and effort, then the question is, well, okay, time and effort, is that closely associated with my personhood? The answer is no. We have plenty of examples of people being paid for time and effort. Nobody worries about commodification of the person from commodification of a person's time and effort, right? So just that like minor switch would be effective at like short-circuiting the commodification argument, I think anyways. Now, of course, you're, the response is going to be, well, it's just a euphemism. But you know what's interesting? is that it seems to me as though it isn't regarded a euphemism in Germany. They had a friend of mine who was a German academic and uh, Dagmar was her name. And uh, we were talking about this and I said, hey, you know, in Germany, they pay for blood and plasma. By the way, they do compensate for blood in Germany as well. And she said, absolutely not. No, no, they don't pay for blood and plasma in Germany. It's a gift. The blood and the plasma itself is a gift. What they pay for is time and effort. So my guess is that in the United States and in Canada, it's going to be regarded as a euphemism, that it's some kind of trick, that, that what's really going on, quote unquote, is that plasma is being sold and the companies just say that they're paying for time and effort. But in Germany, they don't regard it as a euphemism at all. They think that that is what is actually going on if Dagmar is right about, you know, I haven't studied uh, what people think in Germany. Right. And then it doesn't, and then the commodification argument won't go. But by the way, it, even if you think it's a euphemism, it isn't a euphemism when it comes to certain companies. So Griffles is one of the major players in the world. Canada just signed a partnership with Griffles. It's a Spanish blood plasma company. Uh, if it doesn't have the largest network of plasma collection centers in the world, it has the second largest. So it's either the biggest or second biggest in the world. 
Griffles will pay you the same amount regardless of how much plasma they take out. So if you think that what the companies are really paying for, quote unquote, is the plasma itself, then the companies should pay different amounts depending on how much plasma they take out of you. But the volume of plasma that they take out of you depends on your weight. So if you're like 149 pounds, they take uh, 650 milliliters. But if you're like 180 pounds or over, then, then they take 880 milliliters. Other companies will pay differently depending on the volume, but not Griffles. Hmm. Griffles will pay the same amount. Now, it will take the same amount of time and effort to donate plasma, whether you're 149 pounds or 180 pounds. So whether you give six, 650 milliliters or 880 milliliters. Now, how do you explain Griffles's practice? It seems like in that case, it's not a euphemism. You're literally being paid for the time and effort involved in donating plasma and not for the plasma itself. Right. right. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and then tying it back to sort of like a, a cleaner bow on that, like back to the second thing I asked then. So like, obviously, I mean, you, you wouldn't disagree that the people who are, for instance, against um, paying for plasma, you, you wouldn't say that, of course, they don't want uh, a, a good supply, a secure supply of plasma. Often pe- these people are sort of um, plasma activists, if you will, in their own right, and they, they would encourage people to donate and so on and so forth. They just have an objection to this sort of paid situation. So so do you think that they're kind of suffering a bit from that ought sort of uh, state gap, if they, you will, because they, they often are. do want the state uh, in, very much involved and very much uh, almost you know telling people what's up? No, they are. And the mistake that they're making is in uh, thinking that like, look, this thing should be a gift. And then concluding that um, we can't have a market in it, or concluding that we can't exchange it. Mm -hmm. But of course, having a market, like, I don't care whether we have a market in plasma, or a market in time and effort. I don't care. Uh, Fundamentally, what matters is whether or not people can transfer control rights over this substance. Right right? From themselves to a company that will then convert it into therapies that will then save lives, right? Right. So just thinking, I mean, the other thing to say is that this kind of thinking that gifts and markets conflict in the way that people think that they do. I think they're mistaken about that too. I mean, we do buy sweaters for people and turn them into Christmas gifts. So there isn't like a kind of in practice conflict between there is analytically, like there is in terms of the concept of the gift and the concept of the market, those two conflict. But in the real world, like sociologists and anthropologists are going to tell you that like gifts and markets are not so distinct. They overlap significantly. So again, like just kind of looking at the the nature of the concepts, like what is a gift, what is a market, like it's not enough to then conclude that like you can't you can't have private institutions sort of use incentives to try to encourage people to do these things. Right. And and an interesting way of looking at what you're saying too is like it's possible for let let's say, which is I mean, I, I'm pretty sure it's not true, but let's say you, for instance, Peter, agree with these folks from that starting point. Where it's, yeah, yeah, no, no, it should be a gift. Let's say you, you think that. Um, it still does not then follow that there couldn't be some sort of compensation just based on the lines of thought that you were saying. Well, even if you think it's a gift, great. So they're paying right. for time and effort and the, and the substance is a gift. Or if you don't like time and effort talk, then just say they're paying for the control rights mm-hmm. over the substance. But like the substance itself is given as a gift. It's just the control rights that are transferred. Mm-hmm. And do you think that, um, I never want to say something like, cause it's just an unfair assumption to say like the, these folks like aren't, aren't listening, for example, to some evidence that put in front of them. Now, of course, everybody has some degree of sort of like will for ignorance on many topics. So it's possible that some of these folks are literally just not, not listening. But do you think it's just a matter of that they, in your experience that they literally can't get past that principle and then get from that ought to that state, or are they just listening to different sources of information from, you know, from, for those unfamiliar, we'll leave blood aside for a complete second, but even in the plasma situation, which to me personally seems like a lot more straightforward as you described. And, you know, I think I'm on record in previous episodes like just saying i agree with you so i'll just say it again for the record yes i I do agree with peter just so it's it's not like i'm uh, trying to be covert about it by any means but like but you know on the other side though is it in your experience that there is it they literally can't get past that ought is that truly the situation there are they listening to different types of information where they actually truly think that when they cross that ought they cross that gap and they get to that state part they actually think there will be different consequences like what what kind of is your experience with that and your take on what they're saying Mm. 
I'm not sure. I, I think different people are going to think different things. I think all of us sort of want to take um, shortcuts. And, and separately, I think that a lot of our identities are wrapped up not in our moral views and not in our beliefs about the empirical facts, but rather directly with our political views. So people are like, look, I'm a libertarian. That is who I am. That is my identity. Right. Or look, I'm I'm a progressive New Democrat, or I'm I'm a progressive socialist, or I'm whatever a conservative, and so people get wrapped up in that identity, mm. and so in order to avoid a threat to that identity, because suppose like I'll take myself uh, as an example, suppose that like somebody made an argument uh, that demonstrated that paying for plasma that, that there is a new institution that they've thought of and that they've done a test run of, and it generates generates twice as many plasma donations and thereby saves twice as many lives as an incentivized system. And it is not an incentive-based system. It's a gift-based system. So nobody exchanges money. No money is exchanged, but, you know, they've come up with like an amazing advertising campaign and it's cheaper too, right? So then from my perspective, I should then be like, I abandon the view that what we ought to do is pay for plasma. That's the right thing for me to do, right? But for people who are wrapped up, like they see that danger. And so the best way to avoid that danger is to say that, no, I'm a libertarian in principle. Hmm. I'm a socialist in principle. I'm like a progressive, new dumb, whatever. I'm conservative in principle. That way, my identity isn't threatened. I don't have to change identities. I don't have to be like, okay, well, I've changed from being a libertarian to being a a progressive liberal. Right. As if it's a package. Maybe we have a bit of an ought identity gap. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is a bit of a diagnosis. Like, why is it that people are more open towards some of these moral arguments and more open to accepting, you know, right, some of these views? And Mm -hmm. it might be a function of... um, you know, trying very hard to maintain our identity in the face of either countervailing moral arguments that we find persuasive or countervailing like empirical facts. Hmm. That's actually an excellent point. I think our time is wound down. I, w- I was going to bring us to the formal wrap up. I think that that bridges very nicely. So have, having said that, no pun intended, no, no pun intended. Yeah. To We've bring, bridged the beginning and the end. It's right. Yes. And and to bring everything full circle to, to bridge the gap and put a finer point on our exploration of the question, Peter, I mean, you're, you're used to it. I want to make sure the guests always has the last word in the episode to, to bring everything full circle. So let me ask you the official last question as usual. What do you then hope are ultimately the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on what the odd state gap is and how to go about thinking about that. In other words, if you wanted to leave someone listening to us here with one, two, or just a few takeaways, if anything, what would that be? Well, the first one obviously is that we should uh, pay for plasma. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But this, the second one is that you really should feel free to express your opinions about your intuitions sincerely. And don't worry about the threat to your identity and try not to fall prey to solution aversion and just go ahead and reason honestly and sincerely about your moral views. I think that's great. We'll leave it there. So Peter Jaworski, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task yet again. It was great seeing you. My pleasure. Take care, Alex. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.